Well, we can open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 18. So let's get to the matter at hand here. I, I, you know, I'm thankful for expository preaching uh, where we get to hear the hard truths of Scripture. Expository preaching just means that we go passage by passage through a, a, a book and we get the whole counsel of God taught to us. And I, I really enjoy that, hearing those hard truths taught. Um, sometimes it's a little more painful than others. Um, but when it comes to being the person that has to deliver the hard truths, uh, that's a little bit of a different story. Um, I've started on the, the book of Colossians back in June of, of 2015. And for those of you who are new, I'm not the regular preacher here. I, I fill in when needed. And so every time I'm called upon to preach, I just go to the next passage in Colossians. And so here we are at Colossians 3, 18 and 19. If you've already looked down at your Bible, you see it's, it's about some, some truths that uh, maybe aren't widely accepted in our culture today, uh, maybe even aren't widely accepted in our Christian culture today. And uh, so here I am coming to, to preach this. So I've, I've had some fears, to be honest with you, coming uh, to preach this, this passage. Um, preaching on the godly husband in first service with your wife and kids listening is a little bit of a daunting task. And now preaching at second service with my in-laws in the room. You can pray, that's fine. I appreciate that. Uh, but I, you know, probably one of my biggest fears was just injuring my, my kids' view of God. Um, because it'd be easy, I think, for a Davidson kid to sit in here for first service and say, God, I've seen this guy sin against my mom. I've seen this guy sin against me. I've seen this guy sin against my siblings. Now you're having him stand on stage and preach about being a godly husband. And, and so I, I asked my kids for grace as, as I came to preach. Um, I'm reminded of a discussion that we had at our care group, our, our small group last week, where we just kind of recognize that anytime you're hearing someone teach or preach, you're hearing it from a fallen person, uh, a person who is not, not perfect in any way. And so this morning is, is, uh, is no different. But I do fall upon the gospel uh, to enable me to preach and to teach, to love my family and to love my church. So, so here we go. Uh, there's a lot of great truths in the book of Colossians. Uh, the, the book was written by Paul although he was not the founder of the Colossian church in which this letter was sent to. Uh, Paphras was the founder of the church. He had, Paphras had come to Christ through Paul's ministry, gone back to Colossae and, and preached the gospel. A church arose. And if you read the book of Colossians, you see that there was some false teaching that had come up um, in the church. So Epaphras leaves Colossae, goes to meet up with Paul to get some wisdom and ministry training Paul writes a letter that says, here, Epaphras, take this back with you to my, my, my spiritual grandchildren, in a sense, and read this letter to instruct them in the things that they're struggling, struggling with. Uh, one commentary says that the, the theme of the book of Colossians is this, Christ is Lord over all creation, including the invisible realm. He has secured redemption for his people, enabling them to participate with him in his death, resurrection, and fullness. So I think you'll see that theme uh, throughout our study time today. Previous to uh, the passage we're looking at today, verses 1 through 17, you see a, a, a great layout here, I believe, of, of the gospel and what we are to put off in light of the gospel. The gospel revisited again and what we are to put on in verses 1 through 17. And then Paul gets to this passage here where there's six people he addresses, six types of people, which I believe he's saying all that gospel put on, put off this is the implications for you six people, wives, husbands, fathers, children, bondservants, and masters. And so that's where we are 
today. Uh, so it's our custom, if, if we're able to stand, you can please join me in, in reading uh, Colossians 3.18. I'm going to read through chapter 4, verse 1. Reading from the English Standard Version. It says this. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service or people please, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You can have a seat when I pray for us as we begin to study the word together. Heavenly Father, we uh, echo the song that was just played, that Lisa played for us. We, we need you. Uh, we are a people in need. So God, would you allow our hearts and our minds and our affections to be all here right now as we look to your word for instruction. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think you'd agree with me if I said this, that we live in a confused world. In particular, there's, there's a confusion as it's related to relationships and men and, and women. And I'm thankful for our high school youth program. It's called Image, that they're, they're dealing with some of the complexities of relationships right now on Wednesday nights and even providing questions for us as parents to, to talk through with our kids. Because um, our, our kids are growing up in a world that's confused about relationships. So when we get to the institution of marriage, our society is thoroughly confused. You know, who should be allowed to marry? How are spouses to relate to one another? What's the role of, of women, the role of, of men? Um, so today we, we want to try to leave no confusion as it relates to the husband's role. So let me ask this, this question here. Uh, would you say that the role of the husband is to direct and dictate everything in the home? Now, my guess is that most anyone, Christian or not, would say, no, that's, that's not the role, the role of our husbands. I look around this room and see the husbands here. I know they would agree with me. No, that is not the role of a husband to dictate and direct everything. But I think I can safely say this. In the deep, dark places of a husband's heart, he wants to. He wants to dictate and control everything in the home. And I would say this, that's probably not just true of the husband. I think it's true of people. We want to be masters of everything. I'm here and I want the world to revolve around me. Uh, we see passages like Jeremiah 17, 9 that say, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You know, what's inside that desperately sick heart, what, what's inside of us comes out. And our flesh desires for all of life to revolve around us. It's easy to say, see that we're lost people in need of grace. And thankfully, in God's great wisdom, he provides the gospel as the way out of that mess in four easy words. God, man, Jesus response. There is a God who's holy and just. Man is, is sinful and separated from God. God sent Jesus, his son, to pay the penalty for sin that man justly should pay himself. But if we respond to that free gift in faith and repentance, we can have salvation through Christ 
and have an abundant life here on earth and a home in heaven. So it's through that gospel that a transformed heart comes about and we no longer pursue passionately those evil desires. Now if you look back at Colossians 3 before you get to verse 18, what we read, look look at verse 5 there. You see how the gospel affects the transformed heart. We put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. We don't pursue these things anymore. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Look at verse 8. We put these things away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. We don't lie. And then we put on in verse 12. Holy and beloved, we put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We bear with one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So it's through the gospel and this putting off and this putting on that a husband can avoid the confusion of this world, know his role in marriage, and fight for joy to live out his role. So here's the big idea for today. God's goal in marriage is oneness by serving the other. God's goal in marriage is oneness by serving the other. God has roles in which one finds joy in living out the gospel. I'll say it again. God's goal in marriage is oneness by serving the other. God has roles in which one finds joy in living out the gospel. So today I'm going to expound upon what it means to be the godly husband from Colossians 3.19. You might be asking, well, 18 comes before 19. You missed something here, Ben. I, this is purposeful. I'm actually wanting to lay a foundation for a context in which a wife can easily and joyfully submit to her husband by dressing the husband first. So I'm going to start first with a description of husband given in the passage, lover. Okay, so that's your first blank if you're following along. Uh, a husband is to be a lover. And I'm going to go ahead and give you the next two blanks that we're going to build from other passages of Scripture, and that's uh, a learner and a leader as well. I'm going to make your job easy this morning, turn on those PowerPoint. So there's all three. Now, let me, help you, let, me, let me help you resist the temptation and now put down your pen. Now that your blanks are filled out. I, I hope there's more for you to learn besides just writing down three words that start with the letter, letter L. Um, let me give a few warnings before we dive in here. First to wives, uh, I think there could be a real temptation for you to leave the theater and to go home and go like this to your husband. See? This is what I've been talking to you about. Let's see it. You know, if you want to watch the Super Bowl, you better show that, you know. So wives, allow grace, okay? Allow grace. You are not the Holy Spirit. Neither am I but allow grace. Husbands, uh, let me encourage you, don't leave just buried, discouraged. Um, I did get a text after first service from a friend that sat through first service and said, uh, I appreciate the two by four to the head, but I needed it. (laughs) So don't be too discouraged. Um, Allow grace as well. Um, Another warning, I guess, those who are are not married, why would you listen to this sermon on a a godly husband? I, I preach on this topic not because I don't want to preach on single, singleness. It, I preach on this topic because it was what was next in the book of Colossians. And so if you are single, let me encourage you to stay engaged. You may be God's instrument to encourage a, a marriage. Potentially, God could be preparing you for marriage. And, and just so you know, I have asked for input on this sermon 
from women who are not married. And so I very highly value uh, single people in our church. The last warning maybe to all of us is this. I believe there's one interpretation for all of scripture, but there's many, many applications. And so when it comes to the, the godly wife and the godly husband, there's a lot of back and forth that can happen here. Well, what if the husband doesn't do this? Should the wife do that? Or what if the wife does this? Should the husband do that? And there's a back and forth here. And I'll give you an example. Uh, pastor Kevin DeYoung is a pastor out in North Carolina. He's written a bunch of books. I really appreciate his ministry. He was preaching on uh, the godly wife and the godly husband and on singleness and uh, he oftentimes puts portions of his sermon on his Facebook uh, page as he leads up to a sermon. So he was preaching on the godly wife, so he put something on Facebook that said wives are to submit to their husbands and share little thoughts on that. And I thought, oh, Kevin, the internet trolls are a-coming, right? The very first comment said, don't forget about those husbands too, Kevin, right? Well, the next comment, thankfully, was a woman in the Young's church that was addressing the first comment and said, well, just so you know, Pastor Kevin puts up comments about his, you know, words from his sermon and this week's the wife and the next week is the husband. So he will be, and he did put up things about the husband uh, later. So there is this back and forth here. And I'm not going to be able to address everything in those. I looked back to uh, 2009 when Pastor Daniel was preaching through Ephesians and got to Ephesians 5, that great passage on marriage. Um, he got five weeks to preach on the godly husband and wife. I have two. So I'm preaching on the godly husband today and the godly wife next week. And so here we go. The husband is to be a lover, point one. The husband is to be a lover. Verse 19 says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This love here is a continuous love. It's a choice to love. It's not this kind of hallmark Valentine emotion, pixie dust comes down from the sky kind of love. This is a continuous choice to love someone. It could be said to keep on choosing to love your wife no matter what. So this kind of dispels the, the, the motion picture view of love that you kind of, you fall into love. It's kind of not even my choice. I just kind of just fall into love and then, then I fall out of love again. This is a choice to love someone no matter what. The passage goes on to say, and do not be harsh with them. Let me explain that just briefly. Uh, they are not to be harsh with their wives. The husband is not to be harsh with his wife. Um, it says in some other uh, translations, not be embittered against his wife or resentful against his wife. I think when stressed, a, a husband or a person really, but in this context, a husband can become angry shortened speech towards his wife, maybe even intimidating physically. Paul is saying there is no place for that in the godly husband. There is no place for that in loving your wife. Uh, he is to be gentle. Uh, gentleness is said to be strength under control here. But let me go to an extreme here because I think it's easy to love your wife when you're receiving love back from her, right? It's very easy to love your wife then. Um, Rob Green, in the book uh, Tying the Knot, in, in which I leaned upon heavily for this outline, he, he writes this, love is choosing to give, serve, care, provide, and protect someone else even when suffering comes from her hand. He's talking about the husband there. Love is choosing to give, serve, care, provide, and protect someone else even when suffering comes from her hand. 
But for a man, or really for anyone, that's not our natural tendency, right? You hurt me, I'm hurting you. This is a back and forth. You come after me, I'm coming after you. It's a trade-off. That's our flesh's view of that. This might be kind of the first of of what I referenced of the, of the what-if responses often in our hearts. Okay, but what if she continually continues to sin habitually against her husband? He's just supposed to love her and just kind of lay down? Um, let me just say this. I think that's the role of the church. I think that's the role of community. That's the role of church membership in the life of a local church. If a spouse is habitually sinning against the other spouse, of course the church should step in and lovingly help that family and call the guilty party to task with great compassion. Try to restore that person to God-centered living. The church should have great compassion for the offended spouse as well. And I believe all of our churches need to have an environment in which an offended spouse, wife, or husband has the freedom and believes they have the freedom to share their struggle and what they've been enduring with those in the church. We don't want to be a church here at Bethany where we plaster on our plastic faces and just say, doing great, how are you? Praise the Lord, amen. Right, we want to be a church where if you're struggling, you have the freedom to say, you know, I'm not doing well. In fact, there's some things going on in my relationship with my spouse that I need help, and my spouse needs help. And oh, for Bethany community to be that church where people could come in here and say, I'm, I'm a mess, I'm in need, and they don't believe they're judged for that. They are welcomed, they are welcomed, and we help their need. I recently listened to a podcast, okay, where a speaker said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that the Bible doesn't give a lot of qualifiers for obedience in the marriage relationship. For instance, in verse 19, it says for husbands to be constant lovers of their wives, but only if she's kind. Love your wives if she's generous. Love your wives if she's fair, if she's loving, if she asks for forgiveness. There aren't those qualifiers here, are there, husbands? Those qualifiers are not here. Why not? I think because, going back, that's the role of the local church. When someone becomes a member of a church, they're communicating to a church, I need you in my life. I need that kind of leadership and shepherding in my life. And when I became a member of Bethany Baptist Church many years ago, and now they they plant a Bethany community, now I'm a member here, I am so thankful for church membership. Do you know why? It protects me against myself. Because I've communicated to you, I've communicated to you, I've communicated to you that I need you in my life. And if I'm doing something wrong as a husband, I invite that for you to gently and carefully come alongside of me and help me to turn from my sin and be restored to a right relationship with God and a right right walk with God. And so let me encourage you, if you have not considered church membership, to do so, husbands, as you consider what it means to love your wife. I think that could be one expression of you saying, I love my wife. The real meaning of the wedding vow that reads for better or for worse means that when a wife is at her worst, a husband chooses to love her anyway. This kind of love loves in spite of sin struggles. This kind of love loves in spite of a husband's desires not being met in the same way that they were previously. 
Sometimes it's sin that causes a husband's desires not to be met by his wife. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's a car accident and a wife is now a quadriplegic. Sometimes it's other physical manifestations. Sometimes it's Alzheimer's. I believe if I remember correctly, four out of five husbands leave their wives who are dealing with Alzheimer's. My needs aren't being met anymore, so I'm out of here. That's what that communicates. I went back to Daniel Bennett's sermons uh, back in uh, 2009 from Ephesians 5, and he shared an example of Christ-like love for a wife who has experienced Alzheimer's. Some of you may remember this if you were here at the time, but John Robertson McQuilkin was a college president who stepped down from his role as the president of a college to care for his wife, Muriel, who was stricken with Alzheimer's. I'm going to share a little bit more to the story here. When people asked him if he ever tired of caring for Muriel, he would often say, no, I love to care for her. She's my precious. One special memory he recalled was Valentine's Day. He was riding an exercise bicycle at the foot of her bed and thinking of past Valentine's Days. Muriel woke up, smiled, and suddenly spoke for the first time in months. Love, love, love is what she said. Robertson rushed over to give his wife a hug. Honey, you really do love me, don't you? He said. In response came the words, I'm nice. This was her way of saying yes. Those were the last words she said aloud. Robertson continued to love Muriel until the end. By the time of their 50th wedding anniversary, she couldn't function on her own and spent each day lying in bed. After Muriel's passing in a letter to friends, Robertson wrote, quote, For 55 years, Muriel was flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. So it's like a ripping of my flesh and deeper my very bones, Robertson says. But there is also profound gratitude. For 10 years of her struggle with Alzheimer's, I've delighted, I've delighted in recalling happy memories. I still do. No regrets. I'm grateful. Many regard Dr. McCulkin as one of the finest examples of agape love the Bible speaks about. His example helps us to see that expression of love that a husband loves his wife like Christ loves the church. In Ephesians 5, 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In this passage, Ephesians 5, 22, 33, Paul writes, husbands love your wives three times. Now there's probably a joke in there for the ability for a man to listen, right? Because it's said three times and alluded to in other ways. We gain so much ground in oneness, husbands, with our wives when we practice Christ-like sacrificial love towards them. Christ's love for the church cost him greatly. He died. Our love for our wives can cost us greatly. We are to die to self. We see the call to model Christ's love and we see the gospels given so freely to the church, a love beyond measure. But sometimes, husbands, we, we dig our heels in the ground and refuse that love. I've shared this illustration before, I think in a sermon where if you have the wife here and the husband here and there's this mound of sin between the two, and that mound, they can't even see each other anymore. The wife has thrown daggers of sin towards her husband. He's thrown daggers of sin back towards her. 
And if you think about the amount of sin the wife has committed against the husband, let's represent it by the variable X. She's sinned against him X number of times. Now let's look vertically instead of horizontally. The amount of sin that the husband has committed against the Lord is what? We can take that X and multiply it times what? Infinity, right? An infinite amount of times that a husband has sinned against the Lord. And what's the Lord's response to the husband for his sin? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's been given grace and mercy and forgiveness. And he looks at the daggers his wife throws at him. And what's he do? He shows her grace and mercy and forgiveness. We're to love our wives like Christ loves the church. That's the husband's call. They say the true test of servanthood is how you respond when you're treated like a servant. This is why Christ and the gospel must be at the center of every marriage. When two people set their hearts to learn to love unconditionally as Christ loves them, that's the recipe for oneness. So some applications for being a lover of your wife. Turn off the TV. Turn off Netflix and start serving. Erase that legalistic chart that we put in our heads that says, when she's done this for me, then I'll do that for her. That chart doesn't exist. We are to pursue our wives, even to pursue her romantically. So if there's any kids in the room, this is the ooh part of the sermon. Hold your wife. Kiss your wife. Send her a text just to say, I love you. Treat her with such care. Most of all, men, let's do this. If there's one thing you're going to take from this message, let's do this. Love God with such a white, hot, passionate love that it trickles down to your wife. I really give you little hope to love your wife well without loving God first. This distance in your fellowship with God by not spending time with him is like standing across the football field from God and saying, hey God, I could use your help here with loving my wife if you got a second. Versus being wrapped in sweet fellowship with God. Saying, God, I need you. Would you help me to love my wife? I've experienced this. I'm sure that my family can pinpoint the times where I am distant in my love relationship with God because they see the effects that has on how I treat them. And by God's grace, I hope they can see the effects of when I am passionately pursuing him with that white, hot love, that that trickles down to them as well. Now, sometimes he shows his grace magnificently when his love is shown through me, even when I'm not really pursuing my relationship with him. But far more, I see my flesh rear its ugly head so, husbands, you're to be a lover of your wife. Secondly, husband, you're to be a learner of your wife. To be a learner of your wife. 1 Peter 3, verse 7, is the passage I'm looking to for this here. It says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. To live in an understanding way simply means this, to be mindful and considerate of your wife's deepest needs. For a husband to know his wife completely. He is to honor her, it goes on to say, as the weaker vessel, 
as someone who in general may be smaller in stature or muscle size and in need of protection and a reminder that this is not a matter of, of worth. She's a fellow heir with you before the Lord. We are fellow heirs. So this is a command to be a learner of your wife, one that takes investment, one that takes time, one that means slowing down your pace of life, one that takes a spiritually driven curiosity. I want to know about my wife and focus my attention there. The temptation for us as husbands is that sounds great, Ben. Have you seen my schedule? Have you seen the home project list I have? I don't think I need to. You can't afford not to obey this command from the Lord. I would say if you, if you push back on this command, it might reveal something deeper going on in your heart. If you're not willing to obey this clear command of God, or really any clear command of God, what does it say about your desire to obey him? What does it say about what you believe about God? I was talking to Phil Smith, our youth minister, about the pushback that sometimes can be evident and, and clear commands of, of God, especially as it relates to marriage. And Phil brought up a very good point. He said, when we push back on those, we really have to ask ourselves, do I believe God is good? When I push back on these commands of Scripture, do my, I'm saying, God, I think you're good, but I, I really have this other way to live life, so I'm gonna kind of push back on your commands and do life my way because my way has more good in it than you have good in and of yourself. I don't think you maybe say that uh, either in your head or out loud, but that's, isn't that kind of the evidence of our hearts, right? Do you really believe God is good? Do I believe God wrote the Bible for my good? If so, do I believe this command to learn about my wife is good and one that I can find joy in obeying? And let me just tell you, husbands, why wouldn't you find joy in obeying this command? Genesis 2.24 in the ESV says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The NASB says to be joined to his wife. The King James Version says to cleave to his wife. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says he bonds with his wife. This is to know her very, very well and become a student of her. I have a resource called 50 Questions to Ask Your Wife. I'd love to provide this for you guys. Valentine's Day is coming. Be a great date night. Um, the 50 questions start somewhat easy. And you might say, yeah, I might know some of these answers. What are my wife's, what are your five most favorite foods? It has the husband ask the wife. Has the husband asking the wife, what are your five favorite hobbies? Well, then it goes deeper. What makes you most fulfilled or happiness or happiest as a woman or as a wife? What do you fear most? With what chores or responsibilities would you like more of my help? How can I best express my love for you? What concerns and interests of yours would you like me to support? How about this one, guys? What are areas of my life in which you see I need growth? Well, I've learned a lot about my wife, Casey. We've been married 20 years, 21 in August. I've known her for 23 years. And in particular, I'll share something I learned about her when she gets sick. Now, when I was sick growing up in my family, my mom was the kind of mom that really just doted upon me. You know, honey, what can I get you? Do you need anything to eat? Do you need something to drink? Do you, can, I, can I get a, a, just a cold washcloth for your head? You know, she's very tender. 
And I, I met Casey, and then I met Denny and Debbie, her parents. And if anybody knows Debbie, they attend our church. She is just like that, too. Just the most caring, kind, would do anything for you type of, of mom. So when I married Casey, of course, I knew how to serve my wife when she got sick. I was to dote upon her. I was to knock on the door and say, honey, can I come in and just sit on your bedside and talk to you? Can I bring you some Cheez-Its and some 7-Up? Can I do anything for you? And I began to notice that the response back to me was not what I had hoped for. (laughs) She didn't really want to talk to me. She didn't want anything to eat. She didn't want a washcloth for her head. She wanted to be left alone. It went against every fiber of my being to do that. Because I wanted to serve my wife, what? In the way that I want to be served. And so often as husbands, we do that, don't we? I don't need to learn about you, honey. I know how you need to be served. And meanwhile, we're discouraging our wives. It's like the movie where a a man buys strawberries for a woman and we think, oh, that's so sweet. Went to the farmer's market and bought her strawberries. Presents them to her and she reminds him that she's allergic to strawberries. (laughs) We need to be a learner of our wives. Some husbands care for their wives in ways they want to be cared for. And we need to be careful of that. Yeah, I, I'm a runner. I, I've, I've run in this town of Washington. We've lived here for 10 years now. And, and I, it's not a very big town. I know the running paths that I take. I know when the sidewalk's gonna dip. I know when it's gonna go up. In fact, last fall, I strayed from my running path and I sprained my ankle because I didn't know that path. I run with my neighbor once a week. We know that at the end of the street, we're gonna turn right. At the next T intersection, we're gonna turn left. And then we're gonna turn right again and turn left again to go down Kern Road. We don't have to ask each other. We have spent that time together and we know the ups and downs, the rights and lefts of our running paths. How much more is a husband to know his wife and to be a learner of his wife? The culture around us, by way of application, the culture around us says that we cannot understand a woman. I don't believe that's true because God commands us to become a learner and to know your wife. There might be times where you don't understand exactly what she's thinking, but to slow down and listen, to be a learner and to communicate well, to humble yourself before God, to humble yourself before your wife, to take her on dates, to to get that resource, 50 questions, ask your wife, I'd be happy to provide it for you and become a learner. Now, I, I saved the last L for last here, the leader And you might ask, why did I save this one uh, for last? I got to go at breakneck speed now to finish the sermon. Well, I wanted to lay the groundwork of what a leader is like. And I think these first two points get us far down the road in what it means to be a godly leader, to be a lover and learner of one's wife. I had lunch with six men from my care group on Friday. Uh, All were husbands and all, I think, agreed that this third one is the hardest. Leading is the hardest. Uh, But let me encourage you, I think you're a good part down the way, uh, and none of these three L's are mutually exclusive, they all overlap, but I think when we get to the godly leader here, we see a proactivity, we see initiative being taken for God's glory. 
So I, I don't have time to go through the whole passage here, but Matthew 20, 20 through 28 gives us a picture of what leadership is not, first of all, and then what leadership is. The mother of the sons of Zebedee comes to Jesus and basically says, Jesus, put my sons in a leadership position of prominence so they can rule and reign with you. And Jesus says, that's not quite how it works. <laughs> Leadership is not a position of prominence where we lord it over others and a husband's leadership can mistakenly get put into that category. Views on a husband's leading and a wife submitting her husband sometimes include it meaning a husband dominates and does not include his wife in any decision making that, that thinking that true fulfillment is found in doing whatever we want so a husband should rule with an iron fist and do whatever he wants or a wife should give up her brain and obey like a child or a a wife does all the dirty work and is, has a role of misery and unfulfillment. This is far, far, far from biblical truth. A husband's role is to model Christ-like leadership versus worldly leadership. What is that Christ-like leadership like? In Matthew 20, verse 25, it says that Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a much different view of leadership than that mother was looking for at the start of the passage. Again, going back to Ephesians 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ of the church and gave himself up for her and just before that it says husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church Stuart Scott the author of the exemplary husband does a great job making plain I think the husband's role to be the head of his wife and love her as Christ loved the church he writes this the husband and wife are positionally and personally equal he goes to Genesis 127 so God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them equal. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The same before him. Both are created in God's image. Same nature, the same intellect, same ability to know God. Equally accepted by God to salvation and growth. Equal in essence and standing. He goes on to write, the husband and the wife, though, are functionally different. Just like in the Trinity, there is an order of function between husband and wife. This delegation of function has nothing to do with worth or ability. Now, I think we can bring presuppositions to, this to texts like this, but ultimately you have to recognize that God has done something here that will bring him glory and bring us joy. The husband and wife differ in the area of leadership in the home. This seems to be the case in all other human institutions. Look at our government. There are roles and functions. Look at business. Look at parenting. Look at churches. There are all different roles. So Scott asked the question, in light of leadership and function being shown in the Trinity and all other human institutions, why is there difficulties from the leadership of the husband? Here's one way he answers it, which I really appreciate. It comes down to a man's pride. To the husband's pride. A husband must humble himself to realize that he does not have unlimited authority. 
Anything he has is from God and delegated to him. That should drive a husband to his knees. That should drive a husband to his knees. There's no room for lording this over anyone. He goes on and says, The leadership the husband has been given is not for his own selfish benefit, but to glorify God as he lovingly carries it out as Christ did towards the church. Alexander Strock writes in this book, Men and Women Equal Yet Different, the husband-wife relationship is not a boss-employee or a commander-soldier or even a teacher-student relationship. It is a love relationship in which two adults become united as one. With this union, get this, one partner lovingly takes the lead and the other willingly and actively supports that lead. So let me illustrate this in the area of decision-making in a marriage. I think there can be this misnomer sometimes that we pull up into our driveway as, as men and we say, okay, I'm going to walk in there. I'm just going to do whatever she wants. I'm going to serve my wife. And so we walk in with this kind of swagger and say, honey, whatever that issue is that we have to deal with or that event that we have to make a decision on, I'll do whatever you want to do. And we think we're a great husband. Here's how I think it should play out instead. We pull in that driveway. We have already contacted our wife before we got in the car. And we said, what are those issues or events that we make decisions about? And the husband spends his drive home praying and asking God for wisdom on those things and thinking through options that he can present to his wife so he can lead her. He walks into that household and he says, honey, I've spent time thinking about those things and I want your input on those things. Here are two options for that issue and here's the three options for that event that we were talking about. What do you think? Or one of those, one of those work with you? Or is there one I'm not thinking of that you've been thinking about? That's leading your wife, I believe. Because I think the other side of it is really saying, honey, I don't want to lead. So if you can just kind of take care of all the decisions and this whole idea and... and if I'm being harsh, guys, rebuke me later. I'm going to go ask the boss what the schedule is. Really? We don't, you don't mean that. And I, when I've heard, I've heard people say that, maybe I've said it too, but we don't mean that. We don't want to subjugate what God has commanded us to do as husbands. We want to gently and lovingly lead our wives. Right? And so we want to we pull into that driveway and we want to resist that temptation to say, like, like Matt Chandler has said in a sermon, I'm tired. I've earned a break here. I'm going to that house and I'm turning on the Super Bowl because I've earned it. No, we, we pull up in that driveway, as Chandler said in a sermon. He said, we, we pray and we say, God, I need you. Oh, how I need you to lead and love my wife. And you walk into that house and you check on the heart of your wife, you check on the heart of your children, you initiate, you are proactive, you interact with your family, you kiss your kids goodnight, you send them to bed, you check on the heart of your wife again, and you go to bed tired. We shouldn't be going to bed with any energy left. We need that God-given energy to go to bed tired. You know, that decision-making is big when it comes to the, the, the leadership of a husband and, and the, the honoring or submitting of a wife. And, and you know, recently I was in premarital counseling with a couple and Casey was with me 
and this idea of, of how, how do decisions get made. And, and I, I turned to Casey and I said, I know we've disagreed on things before, but can you remember a time where you had a different opinion and I had a different opinion and I just said, thanks, but no thanks, we're doing it my way? And by God's grace, she said no. It's like, whew, it's a new, almost a married couple here. We got to give a good example here, right? But by God's grace, she said no. I, this lording over male headship thing is it's just not, not congruent with Christ. Christ loves the church. It's, it's illustrative in, in how our, our elders make decisions here at Bethany Community Church. Did you know that our elders make decisions in unanimity? If, if all the elders agree, on, and there's one elder that does not agree, we do not move forward on that decision. Do you know why? We take that elder who is saying, no, I don't agree with this decision, as God's warning against us and our church to not go in that direction. It's the same way in the marriage relationship. If I'm thinking, well, I, I, this is the way we need to go. Casey, are you on board with this? She goes, oh, I'm not sure. I take heed of that. She may be protecting our family from great harm. And so I listen to my wife and take heed of, of, of that warning. There are so many other aspects of servant leadership here that I wish I had five weeks to do uh, this sermon uh, series. Um, you know, one, one friend of mine told me once that um, he never lays down in his bed before his wife does. He said, far be it from me to ever watch her fold the laundry while I lay down in bed. He says, I get up and I help her with those things. Um, when Daniel preached in, in 2009, he said, husband's leadership means that every aspect of the home is his responsibility. You physically saw men squirming in their seats when he said that. Leadership means it is our responsibility and our wives graciously take on responsibilities for the husband. Servant leadership is dying daily. John Piper said this, sin is ugly. It should be killed daily. I die every day because Jesus said, take up your cross daily and crosses are for dying. We're to, to lead our wives to spiritual nourishment. We're to lead our wives to provide for physical needs. We're to to lead our wives and being gentle with her. Men, let me encourage you. Um, take some time, by way of application, take some time to write down goals for yourself, goals for your family, uh, projects for ministry, projects for your kids, uh, where the next steps are for discipleship for your kids or for your grandkids. And to take those to your wife, take the initiative and take those to your wife and say, honey, I've taken some time to think through and pray over these things, but I know I need your input into these things. If it's best for your family, start with your wife and say, honey, I'd like us to, to develop some goals together in these areas. In fact, I won't go over this too much. I, I wrote a blog about this in our church blog about setting goals like that and taking the initiative. I encourage you to go to it. I think I, it was posted last week. Take into account your wife and how you can serve her. Ask her how you can help her spend time with the Lord and present your wife as faultless. You can ask yourself, what, what if every husband loved and learned and led his wife like I do? Well, thankfully, the gospel and the word give us what we need to live out our marriage in a way that pleases God and gives us the most joy. So God's goal in marriage is oneness by serving the other. And so I hope you'll join us next week as we talk about the godly 
wife. Uh, why don't I close us in prayer, and if the band wants to come out, uh, I'll, I'll close in prayer. And why don't we stand? I'll just dismiss us now, and then the, the band can, can play a song as we greet each other and leave. Let me, let me pray for us. Uh, let me read uh, from Colossians 3. Some of the verses that lead right up to verse 18 and 19 about wives and husbands. In Colossians 3, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So husbands, love your wives. Amen? You're dismissed. Have a great rest of your day.